0: You've tuned in to Badla for Better, a podcast by Beam Medical Systems, saving lives through reliable and innovative technology. Hosted by Jaisal Doshi.
1: Hello and welcome to yet another episode of Badla for Better. As you know, Badla for Better is our attempt through small conversation to bring about big changes in India's healthcare system through a ripple effect. Today, it gives me great pride and honor. To introduce Mr CK Mishra. Mr CK Mishra needs no introduction. With nearly four decades of public service, Mr Mishra has served as an administrator, a policy maker, a public health strategist, holding a wide range of assignments in the fields of health, education, industry and power, and reporting to the highest authority of our country. Mr Mishra holds many, many hats. He was the additional secretary and Mission Director of National Health Mission before this. He's led multiple committees focused on eradicating COVID-19 and the fight against COVID-19. And he's, I would say, one of his biggest achievements is Mission Indra Much before COVID, he realized the importance of vaccination and the child immunization program in India that he spearheaded. Mr. Mishra, it gives me great pleasure to welcome you here. Thank you so much, sir, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me over. We spoke about your career in the Indian Administrative Services, which has been incredibly illustrious. You've held position of Secretary in three ministries. Tell us a little bit about this journey. Maybe starting off from the beginning, what motivated you to join the the services?
2: You know, that's a question people often ask all those who got into the service. And very often a straight answer is that I wanted to serve the people, I wanted to do several things for the country. All that is absolutely right. Let's get practical for a while. When you are 20-21 years of age and you're looking at a career ahead, you weigh your options. In the early 80s when I was weighing the option, by far this was the best choice. So to be very honest, I went for the best choice. And with that choice came the responsibility of being with the people, serving them. But one very, very important thing that always kept me occupied in this journey was that you can be the change maker. And it's not necessary that you succeed always. But if you succeed, the sweetness of that success really propels you to go ahead and do another good work. I have always admired being with people and that is one of the reasons why I got into the service apart from the social prestige and other things that it carries. It is an important thing for India where you lead and, by example, try and bring about change, try and bring about change in the lives of people, the way you look at life. This has been an incredible journey in the sense that there's been many ups and downs. There have been several successes, which I am very proud of and there have been failures, which I acknowledge successes have been very critical in life, but I think looking back at 38 years in civil services, those failures were great things that happened. They taught me how to move ahead, they taught me how to learn afresh and really get going. You know, this service gives you a great opportunity to do a variety
1: of things, which you don't get anywhere else. That is the biggest attraction. Th- thank you so much for such a candid response, and you know, coming from someone who is, I would say, reporting to the no no less than the Prime Minister himself on multiple occasions, to have that sort of candid acknowledgement is is truly remarkable. Thank you so much, sir, and I think. For all our listeners, there is a lesson here that about humility, that no matter how high you get, uh, you still make mistakes, and it's important to acknowledge and learn from them. But, uh, sir, just you know, you spoke about the early 80s when I was still crying and wearing diapers, <laughs> and uh, it's it's fascinating. And you spoke about being a change maker. What is very unique about uh, your career is that you have been a change maker all throughout your career. And a lot of people believe that you can be a change-maker only after you reach a certain position or a certain level. So, what would your advice be to such uh, people? See, it's true that
2: your change gets recognised if you are doing it at a particular level. But the fact that you can change doesn't need a level. Fantastic. You do it at a very basic level, not many people will talk about it. If that satisfies you, which it should, feel happy. But if you move ahead to higher levels, you have to be that much more careful about the change that you're bringing about. Because that change must influence people's life in a very positive way. So I I think it's not about levels, it's not about uh, the status, it's not about the stature. You can bring about change anytime, provided you believe in it.
1: But you know, in a way, you've captured the essence of this podcast, which is really through small conversations, through conversations that may finally not lead anywhere. But really, our attempt is to create that ripple effect that gets people to think, to to listen to these uh, experts such as you, and to really bring about change even at a small, at an individual level. Because we truly believe that this is where real change comes from. Absolutely. If uh, you cannot bring about an
2: individual change, I don't think you're suited for bringing about social change.
1: Absolutely. That could not be better said than that. And in your 38 years of service, it's a difficult question because I'm going to ask you to single out one or at the maximum two achievements that make you the proudest looking back at 38 years. And that's a tough one. Uh, But let me try. You know, if
2: I am to single out two achievements, one, I would say the health sector. Both as mission director and secretary at the government of India level, as well as secretary at the state level, I think I was able to influence change in the existing systems. Brought about new thinking, brought about a fresh wave of help. Bring down the MMR, IMR, and all those things. That is one thing that I would single out as my achievement. The other thing, which is in hindsight, I'm saying something that I didn't really think while I was in service was the policy making ability. You know, I was surprised myself when I was reading what I have done through my service that I wrote at least five national and sub-national policies. The health policy, the draft forest policy, the industry policy of Bihar. So, you feel good about it because you are actually contributing a lot. Individual instances are instant success and they really make you feel elated. But it is these that live down the lane. Even today, everybody talks about the 2017 health policy, for example.
1: So, that that's critical. Absolutely. And, and I think that health policy of 2017 was instrumental. Because we see many of the changes or, or proposals that were made back then are being implemented even today.
2: You know, it gives you immense sense of satisfaction. I'll give you another example. I wrote the National Cooling Action Plan, for example. It was only after we spoke to the industry and kind of implemented it, we were told that this was the first of its kind in the world. Wow. That gives you satisfaction and you know, this is not a short-term thing. It will last. So, I always believe that any government servant, I mean, it could apply to others as well, but particularly in government, if you are in a position to influence long-term policy, if you are in a position to create institutions for longer term, that's a better success than having a thumping result one year and not getting it three years later.
1: One of the biggest successes, I believe, that you were very closely you, you led yourself was Mission Indradhanush. So could you tell tell our listeners a little bit about what exactly is Mission Indradhanush? See to
2: rephrase what you were trying to say. You may be the pharmacy of the world, producing several vaccines, but unless that vaccine reaches the arm, it has no meaning. And that is what routine immunization tries to do. The second basic principle is that if a child death or a death is preventable with a vaccine, every death should be prevented. That's a right of the person who lives. So it was with that kind of a thing that we started the vaccination program. You know, when we were going year after year, India was growing at about 1% full vaccination every year. And it was consistent. So I got together with a colleague of mine, who was my joint secretary then. And he came up with the idea, why don't we think about something different? So we started talking, we started discussing with many people and we realized that the growth was not happening because a huge amount of children, about 40% of them, in many districts, in about 200 odd districts of India, were not getting their first shot or were not getting the, all the shots to call it full immunization. So we decided that we have a legacy of polio microplan. Let's use the microplan in a few districts and see if we can identify who that child is. And we started with this. It was a huge success. We were able to actually identify and we came up with a number that X number of children today, between 0 to 5, are not fully vaccinated wow. and where they live. So that is how Mission Indra dhanushap So, then I conceptualized the whole thing as to how we'll reach them. Of course, it has very interesting aspects to it and I can share it with the listeners. You know, when I took it first to government, they thought this won't work. So, I was told, you discuss it with this, discuss it with that. Then there were some changes in the ministry and I made another attempt. And then I was told, if you think you can do it, do it. So, when we experimented it and Got down to Mission Indir Dhanu's Phase One, where we said these are the children. Let's start locating them and do the entire immunization. It didn't do well. Do too well in the Phase One. So again, you know the government system. They start telling you you honestly get wasting everybody's time in this etc. But by the time Phase Two came, the mission took off so well so well that all international bodies, including all the magazines, British Medical Journal, Lancet, everybody started writing that this is one of the most novel experiments that we are doing in reaching out to children. And then, of course, everybody was happy, best achievements in terms of delivery. If we can vaccinate children well, we prevent a lot of morbidity and mortality and therefore a lot of expenditure on health in future
1: absolutely and as you rightly said you know if if as a country if we can prevent every single death that it's we preventable. should absolutely that is preventable we should absolutely make sure that we prevent those and i think vaccination is is probably the single best investment out there to achieve that
0: you've tuned in to the 6th episode of badla for better an indian healthcare story
1: But uh, talking a little bit about what I mentioned at the beginning about Bihar and eliminating polio from Bihar, that for a lot of us today, we may not even understand what is polio because it's been eradicated from the country for so many years now. But why don't you explain to us, uh, you know, what it was, how big was the problem and how you went about solving it?
2: You know, that was the last phase of polio and uh, polio cases were being reported in india only from up and bihar so the world uh, who and all other international organizations were after me when i was a health secretary there that this is this is something that you need to do so we tried to figure out where are we and we realized that it was only the kosi region of bihar where this problem existed there was a problem of denial there was a problem of non acceptance and there was a problem of access and reach. So all of the problems all put all together, the, and yeah. so we we converged on that area, and drew up a house-wise micro plan. It was so difficult because major part of the population who were missing out, you know, were mobile populations. They're working here today; they go there tomorrow. So the uh, vaccination gets discontinued. You will not believe it, in six months, we were able to launch a campaign where our frontline health workers were riding buffaloes and other animals to cross streams to actually go and vaccinate. Every bus stop had a vaccination program, every train station had a vaccination program. And it was not the health department at Patna which was doing it, it were actually the frontline health workers of Kosi who took this cause. They said there's a lot of confusion. We spoke to all religious leaders and they made appeals continuously. And finally, six months after that, we realized that we had actually done it. And when India did it, there was this sense of numbness that I felt, that I had some small part to play. It gives you so much happiness
1: i I cannot even fathom the happiness and the pride you would have, especially the way you described it. It seemed like it was a war you know to oh, it
2: was you know in a normal conventional war, you know the weapons here you don't know the weapons
1: yeah, exactly and and when you describe it so vividly, you know to do micro family planning, to know exactly in which house, how many people are there, how many children are there, they are there today, tomorrow they are somewhere else. And then to send people on buffaloes, as you said. I mean, it's nothing short of uh, a heroic effort like a war. Hey,
2: people responded like anything. And that was the core reason for success.
1: Absolutely. And I think also, unlike a war where you know your enemy is real, it's very tangible. Something like polio is not so tangible, especially when there is a lack of awareness. Absolutely. I mean, only people who have suffered
2: know it. Others don't. So, you have to make sure that that awareness is built in strongly into people's mind, so that you create that acceptance. And another thing I'll tell you, in a rural setting, even if one is non-aware, but he sees a lot of activity on a particular thing, he gets excited and interested. And your job as an administrator is to capture that
1: interest and put it into the system. Yeah. No, it's it's fascinating. I'm sure, uh... On, on behalf of the people of Kosi, I think uh, we're all very grateful to you and, and, and the team and the frontline workers who eventually made this happen.
2: Oh, I'm so grateful to them.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I cannot imagine somebody sitting on a buffalo carrying vaccines and trying to track down each and every person in some of the most rural parts of the country. But, uh, you know… You spoke several times about maternal health, child health. You spoke about IMR and MMR. And, and so where do you think today as a country we can do more for our mothers and children? See, we've come a long way.
2: And from a completely dismal position where we were being criticized by the rest of the world, we've come to a reasonably respectable position. We're still losing a lot of mothers and a lot of kids. If you lose them because there is no option, you can't do anything. But you are losing them when you have an option, when you have a tool to save them. It's tragic. Absolutely. So what we were really able to do and one of the biggest reasons that I always mention and the drop in MMR, IMR is our consistent improvement on institutional delivery. Today, we are getting 90% people into institutions for delivery. So, A, the best possible care is being given. And B, we know how to track them till the end. Not just that, we are able to track all the kids who were born for vaccination. So, the entire MCH kit, so to say, is very, very critical to, you know, you can spend a lot of money on tertiary care. But if you ask me, and many people don't agree with me, if you ask me, if the government has money, it should go into preventive, promotive health. We need to invest in primary health care. And what is the bulwark of primary health care? Good maternal child health care, which ensures that the mother survives, the child not only survives, but thrives. So, you don't have a future generation of sick people. So, I would say that the policy dilemma before the country is, do you want to just treat sick people and cure them if you can? Or do you want to invest in a system where
1: you ensure that people do not get sick? It's, it's a very interesting uh, thought that you mentioned because the way you described it, to me, it seemed like a no-brainer. And yet, you mentioned it's a dilemma and many people don't agree with your view. Can you can you tell us why? Why do people think it's better to treat sick people instead of avoiding I'll, getting them sick? I'll tell you. There is a thinking
2: that you need to provide healthcare when people actually need it. Now, take Indian example. The health-seeking behaviour is low. So you get people only when they are sick or very sick and you as a government say that I'll treat them. That is visible. That is a direct impact. So politically and otherwise speaking that gets you those eyeballs. If you carry on a low-grade maternal child health campaign where you ensure that there are three ANCs, where you ensure that ASHA is going and giving the right pills, you ensure that the vitamin A supplement goes, you ensure that the delivery takes place in a good, you know, labor room, you ensure that hygiene is there, the nutrition is taken care of. These are not direct eyeball-catching things. And that, I think, is a policy dilemma. One of the biggest success, let me tell you, that the country has had in healthcare, over the last three decades or four decades, is the National Health Mission, and the reason for the success of National Health Mission was twofold: a, its focus on maternal-child health, and b, its focus delivery with backed by resources, and that is why I dare say that since 2005 when it was launched there's been no change in the program. It's only added a few extra chapters
1: to it. And that's the proof that one is looking for. As you said, you know, a policy which is focusing on maternal and child health, which is focused on preventing sickness in the first place. I I think that's, that's a great story since 2005, something that has been now built on over Almost two decades and is continuing to grow in success.
2: Yeah, every year new chapters are being added, new ideas are being added. It's just growing. So that is a concrete investment into human lives. You're making lives better.
1: Absolutely.
0: Aap sun rahi hai Badla for Better, a podcast by B Medical Systems, saving lives through reliable and innovative technology. Jaisal Doshi Dwara hosted.
1: Coming back to your uh, the point you were making about the politics behind policy-making, right? and the fact that uh, while a, sound, a policy may be very sound, it may not appeal directly to voters and therefore to politicians. Uh, in this specific context, do you think Covid has changed that? In that now people are saying, look, I need to get healthier. I hope it has.
2: If Covid hasn't changed that, I don't know what will, because this was a direct attack on your life. Absolutely. And nothing threatens people or policy more than losing lives. So this should have happened. The learnings from COVID need to be carried on. But if you look at the entire scenario, I hope and pray that the investment levels continue to be the same. Health is given central. Health, the biggest problem is that it is not a central issue of political discourse in India. And unless it becomes a matter of political discourse, it will not get the central attention that it deserves. We talk about uh, uh, population dividend. What dividends? If you have an unhealthy young generation, you will not get any dividend out of it. So I think it's time that health became central to all conversations.
1: No, it's uh, very important that you know health becomes the center of all conversations, the center of public discourse. And my hope, personally, is that through conversations with experts like you, we can at least start getting health into the mainstream conversation. And I'm sure that by listening to uh, you know your experience and your expertise, there will be a lot of people who will actually start thinking along these lines. I, I want to move into something totally different now. You, in addition to being Minist- uh, Secretary of the Ministry of Health, you were also Secretary of the Ministry of Environment, Climate Change and Forests. One of the very interesting topics at the intersection of both of these is One Health. And for a lot of our listeners, it's probably not something they hear often. Can you can you tell us a little bit about One Health and what it means? Yeah, I'm so happy that I had
2: both the challenging positions, I was part of it. You see, we were looking at health only either from the human health angle or the animal health angle. Time has come when we look at health as one entity as everything that impacts health is a part of that One Health policy. Health is not a standalone thing. You you don't get unhealthy because uh, your body reacts. There are various players around you, various things happening around you which influence you. You need to take all that into account. And today, One Health is one of the most critical issues before us. If we can address this from the point of view of One Health, then we have a larger chance of success. And what Environment Ministry has taught me really is, is that the globe needs to start talking about the intersection of climate and health. We are talking about health separately, climate separately. It's time we put the two together. Intersection of climate and health resulting in one health policy is what we need for the globe today.
1: It's fascinating and tell us a little bit more about how climate change in particular impacts uh, health and, and One Health. Let's take climate change
2: adverse impacts. You know climate like any other disaster impacts the vulnerable the most. The most vulnerable countries will get impacted, the most vulnerable populations will get impacted. So let me give you an example of a vulnerable women if climate adverse impacts reduce availability of water can you imagine what impact will it have on women in the world the way they'll have to go further to carry water the lesser water they will get hygiene's will reduce i mean you know uh, diarrheal deaths will increase the other is heat The more heat you will get worse off in healthy conditions. Zoonotic diseases, everything is combined. It has, when climate impact is there on every part of your body and they all react differently to climate change. If you have too much of rain and water logging, you have different impact. If you have no rain in a completely dry season, you will have a different impact. So you have to really, really look at it that way and then you look at, let's say, the animal side, the way they are being impacted. It's all interrelated. I mean, you know, I used to tell everyone that please be very careful. The viruses were contained in the animal kingdom. You went too close and you took that on yourself. Now you need to resolve this puzzle of who stays where and how. So one health is a concept which whether one likes it or not one will have to accept because that is the way to moving ahead in a healthy life.
1: And you you mentioned climate change like all other disasters impacts the vulnerable the most. We all today acknowledge the impact of climate change. We see it happening on a daily basis. And yet, I feel collectively as a as world, we are not doing enough to address climate change. Uh, somewhere, do you believe, because it impacts the vulnerable the most, that collectively we are unable to take decisive action?
2: My own belief is that the best action that the globe takes is when the voices that are heard are all around. Here are voices that are subdued, because they are all vulnerable people. Small island Nation, for example. So, the world is cognizant of the problem, so they talk about it. But since the voices do not create enough pressure, they don't act on it. And these are completely different things. Look at the world today. The finances and the technology that has been promised by developing countries is nowhere to be seen. Each country is left to fend for itself when it comes to climate change. So, really, the vulnerable today do not have a voice in the central marketplace, so to say. And somebody needs to work on that to give them a voice. Or the other side needs to, you know, clear its ears to listen to that voice. As long as that is happening, there will be a huge gap between what is professed and all those big meetings that we have today and what is implemented.
1: So, in a in a way, it's similar to, for example, COVID vaccination in Africa, which clearly, you know, was one of the most vulnerable, but a voice which was not heard. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at
2: anything, look at routine immunization, look at medicines, look at uh, generic drugs, reaching. Equity has been the biggest problem. And equity is very often spoken about, but never really looked at for a solution. And unless you have equity in a program, you cannot do it. You know, it's a strange thing that some countries say that we'll be net zero by X, period. Does it help the world? Because the country next to it is not net zero.
1: Exactly.
2: So, even that country which claims to be net zero is going to be adversely impacted. Right. So, it has to be a cross. I mean, there are cliches saying nobody should be left behind, etc., etc. And all global conversations are surrounded by it. But, I personally feel there is a lack of will to create that micro-plan which will actually implement it.
1: It's interesting. You're talking about a micro plan for climate change. That's not uh, something that would seem very intuitive at first. But I, I think you're spot on when you talk about equity. I think one of the areas where India has done remarkably well on equity is COVID, in terms, especially in terms of vaccination, right? To ensure that no one is left behind. If you were to uh, sort of apply a similar lens to India's fight against climate change. How would you rank India?
2: See, why just Covid? Even the routine immunization in India is a shining example of equity to the world. Absolutely. Let me narrate a story to you. It was, I think, 2010, if I am not mistaken, 10 or 11, Mr. Bill Gates came to Bihar and said that I want to see some far-flung areas, backward areas, where Immunization has or has not been done. And he, while we were flying in the chopper, the two of us were together. And he mentioned to me that, you know, I have heard that uh, certain populations do not get these doses. So we landed in a very far-flung area, crossed the river on a boat which used to ferry sand. We sat on the sand and went to the other side. And will you believe it, every house he went to, the children had been vaccinated. Wow. that is equity. And India has been a shining example of that. And we've again proved it during COVID. But coming back to climate, the current discourse on climate change is to a great extent limited to energy transition. An energy transition is a slightly remote subject as far as the underprivileged and the marginalized are concerned. We are yet to draw out plans for them. And I would think that that would really begin to happen when we have a district level plan for adaptation. Right. Mere mitigation plans are not going to help. We need to focus on adaptation in our rural areas so that the underprivileged who are not to be left behind are actually brought into the sea.
1: And, and do you think it's only a matter of time before that happens? should happen.
2: I see no reason why it will not happen. And to be very honest, in this entire flight in climate change space that is going on across the globe, India has been singularly ahead of others. This is one country which is doing really well. So there is no reason why it should not be looking at equity sooner than others do.
1: No, it, it, I think it's a matter of great pride for us, and these are things that not all of us know, but it's it's fantastic hearing it from the person who's made it happen. Uh, Mr. Misha, I, I would love to continue, but we are running short on time, so I would like to end with one question. Your uh, role model for millions of aspirants in our country who are applying, who would like to join the Indian Administrative Services, What would your advice be to those millions of young people out there?
2: Very difficult to pontificate, you know. (laughs) (laughs) But I would say, don't get into the service with an overcrowded, clogged mind. Go with an open mind. Make the best of every opportunity you get. And don't do things only because you're supposed to do it and being paid for it. Enjoy whatever you do. As long as you enjoy, you'll do a good job.
1: Fantastic words coming from the man who's helped eradicate polio in India, who's helped fight COVID in India, who's helped India's fight against climate change. Uh, Mr. Mishra, thank you so much, sir, for your valuable time. This has indeed been a true honour for us. It was such a pleasure, such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: You were listening to Badla for Better, an Indian healthcare story. A podcast by B Medical Systems, saving lives through reliable and innovative technology. Hosted by Jaisal Doshi.